The Macro View, episode 34. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right, folks, got another great episode for you tonight in part two of our three-part series on the origin of money. So last night we discussed what money is, the problem that it solves, and the reason why it's naive to think that some benevolent dictator was wise enough to come up with the idea for a universal uh, or a universally accepted medium of exchange. So if it wasn't government that came up with money, how did money come about? Well, money merged onto the marketplace spontaneously. In the example explaining the double coincidence of wants problem, the problem money solves, on last night's episode, we used the example of a sheep herder taking a sheep and some sheep's wool to market and attempting to come home with four different goods. In this fictitious sheep herder's journey to the market, the sheep herder had to exchange his or her sheep and wool for excess grain, then trade some of the grain for other goods that were desired, and even then, the sheep herder was stuck with a little bit of excess grain and less wine than the sheep herder desired. Now, the reason that the sheep herder initially decided to trade for excess grain, even though he or she was not going to use all of the grain themselves, was because they believe that the grains would be easier to exchange and with the excess grains, were willing to give up some, some of the excess for other goods. Now, the greater ease with which these grains were able to be sold in Manger's The Origin of Money is referred to as the saleableness of a commodity. Now, today we call it liquidity. Now, this gives a lot of insight into how a universally, universally accepted medium of exchange, money, emerged onto the marketplace. So at first, there are a number of different mediums of exchange, everything from leather and other skins, as Minger called them, to items such as grains and wine. Now, obviously, these goods were more saleable or more liquid than were, for example, entire cow or a telescope, which is one of the examples that Minger actually gives in The Origin of Money. Now, that didn't mean that an entire cow was not valuable, but rather in order to sell an entire cow at one time in one place swiftly, the seller would likely have to take a little bit of a discount over what they'd be able to, to, uh, to purchase with the value of the cow in the event of them exchanging it for a medium of exchange to begin with. So people that go to market with certain quantities of certain commodities would be prudent to find goods that could be traded for more saleable and more easily used to then go ahead and purchase the, the, uh, the goods that are desired. So like, for example, the person coming to market with, let's say three sheep that wanted a whole host of other goods would not likely to be able to trade for a cow or a telescope or would, excuse me, would not be likely to trade for a cow or a telescope, even if they, if, if they did not want a cow or a telescope, and then go on and try to trade the cow or the telescope for the goods desired. So therefore, cows and telescopes were not likely to become mediums of exchange. They were just in consumer goods. So people that go to, go to the market with certain quantities of certain goods, 
You know, it makes sense for them to first exchange it for goods that they know a lot of other people will like, that are more easily divisible, et cetera, et cetera. Now, eventually, as repetition would teach market participants in the ancient world, certain commodities were far more saleable. And not only were they more liquid, but they had other characteristics that made them easier to use or made it easier for them to become a universally accepted medium of exchange or a money. Now, when we get back from our first quick break, we will discuss exactly what some of those characteristics are and why they're important. First, though, I do have to cut away and share this incredibly, absolutely incredibly valuable resource with my listeners. So we'll be right back after this quick message. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist straw men. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular... You'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, Freedom's Progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. All right, everybody, we're back. So what other qualities other than liquidity of a commodity would lead market participants to universally accept it in return for goods that they're trying to sell, even if it was not the end good that they desired to acquire? So first and foremost, other than, aside from the saleability, it had to be easy to carry around and it had to carry a high value to weight ratio. So goods such as iron and other industrial metals, though useful, They're not very easy to lug around. Nobody wants to have to carry a ton of iron around. So it had to be valuable in small weights and easy to transport and carry around. Now, leather, for example, may have been valuable in small weights because it's fairly light, but it might might take a large chunk of skin or of hide, you know, a bulky chunk, and that would make it a little bit more difficult to carry around. You'd have to take up a lot of space on your caravan. So another quality that a medium of exchange had to have in order to become universally accepted is that it had to be very durable. That is, it had to be able to be stored and withstand rain and wear and tear, etc. So the reason being is obvious. If you traded all your goods for this medium of exchange, then you got caught in a storm on your way back from the market. Now all of a sudden you lost all the value of the goods that you hold the market. So this ruled out commodities such as grains, and it ruled out metals that would rust, 
and it ruled out leather, which shrinks when it gets wet, and it ruled out meats, which would spoil fairly, fairly quickly. So whatever became a universally accepted medium of exchange, a money, had to be very durable. And then it also had to be very easily storable. So another quality that whatever was to become a universally accepted medium of exchange would need to have is that it would need to be easily divisible with little or no loss. So it'd have to be easily divisible. And when dividing it, you had to be able to avoid loss or too much loss of the weight of the commodity and thus maintain essentially the full value of the commodity after dividing it. So another quality that a universally accepted medium of exchange would have to have is that it would need to be easily authenticated. So this this is another major problem that, for example, leather and other, other animal skins ran into. Now, it may be difficult to determine the difference between fresh cowhide and fresh raccoon hide. I'm just throwing that that out there as an example. I'm sure expert taxidermists would be able to tell immediately. But the layman selling fruits at the market may have a more difficult time and doesn't want to end up going and trying to sell their their what they believe to be authentic cowhide to a taxidermist and find out that it's not real. So it, it also may be fairly difficult, for example, to determine the difference between a grape wine and other fruit wines or between a Merlot or, and a Cabernet without opening up the wine, which would then lead to quicker spoilage for the wine. Now, what other qualities, if we really think about it, would a medium of exchange have to have in order to become universally ex- accepted? Well, it would have to be viewed as having a stable exchange ratio with a wide range of other commodities. So in other words, it would have to be easy for buyers and sellers to know generally what quantity of other commodities they could purchase with a definite quantity of this particular commodity. So it'd have to have a generally stable value. And it would also have to be something that was generally pretty difficult to, to just simply manufacture. Therefore, it wouldn't all of a sudden just see a spike in supply all commanded by a single individual or a small group of individuals. Now, these qualities over time were witnessed by market participants. And eventually, you ended up with a universally accepted medium of exchange. Now, we all know historically that precious metals, particularly gold and silver, have served as money in both ancient and more recent times. So obviously, part of the reason why these precious metals became universally accepted mediums of exchange is due to their meeting the criteria that we just discussed. They're easy to transport. They have a high value to weight ratio. They're extremely durable. You could leave gold at the bottom of the ocean and it doesn't rust. And they're very easily divisible. They're also easily authenticated. You know, most people can tell the difference between real gold and fool's gold. They're also difficult to manufacture. You can't synthesize gold. Even though it's been tried uh, for generations, it's been tried to be synthesized. It's very, very difficult. There's actually a recent story about Russian scientists trying to, to synthesize gold. And the, the, the cost of actually trying to do so was so much more, it was outlandish. It was so much more than the value that they were able to get out of it. It was just, it was a waste of money. So there is one more reason, though, why the precious metals 
became, and also the other thing is that gold and silver almost always maintained a fairly stable exchange ratio to other commodities over time. But there's also one more reason why precious metals became the historic money and lasted as a money for as long as it did. We're going to take one more quick break, but when we get back, we will discuss that reason. But first, I do have to make my listeners aware of one more extremely valuable educational resource. So we will be right back after this quick message. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Bootcamp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. All right, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us here. We are back. Now, there is one more reason why gold and silver were the front runners to become a universal medium of exchange, a money, and why they eventually did, and not just in one single location, but almost virtually around the world. Now, the reason why was, as we know well from historical epics, there's a lot of international trade. Caravans going along the Silk Road from east to west, west to east. And gold and silver, the precious metals, are actually fairly evenly distributed geographically across the world. And they're easier to harvest or mine than many other metals due to their malleability or the softness as a metal. So given the, also given the fact that they're shiny, naturally they're a little bit easier to, to find and to discover in their natural settings. And at the same time, in any single place, they're fairly rare. So while they're pretty well evenly distributed, there's not a ton of, they're obviously I'm using ton lightly. There's much more than ton. There's hundreds of tons, thousands of tons of gold, but there isn't an enormous unlimited supply. And wherever you did find gold or silver, it was generally a, you know, it was generally a certain finite amount. So, but to demonstrate how they're evenly distributed, if you go to the World Gold Council's web website on their homepage, it contains the following statement. Gold mining is a global business with operations on every continent except Antarctica and mines of, of widely varying types and scales. The vast majority of the world's gold was mined in the mo modern post-war era 
And as the industry has evolved, it has also diversified. Now, this is not a modern phenomenon, though. Throughout history, gold mining has been an important industry. Now, there are a lot of people out there following in the Keynesian tradition who believe, oh, gold has no intrinsic value or no use value, which first off is, is just simply not true. Gold is extremely useful for the high technology industry, which, albeit is, is a fairly new industry, but further values, as Menger and other Austrians point out, and in the mainstream schools of thoughts as well have pointed out as well, values are subjective. They're not objective. It's not necessarily based on the, the intrinsic or use quality of, of a certain commodity. It's based on what at any given time, at any given point, in any given place, what the consumers subjectively uh, appraise it as. Now, gold and silver always served an ornamental value for jewelry and for other aesthetic purposes. And humans appreciate beauty and art. Going back millennia, going back to the oldest known civilizations and even pre-civilization, you find things like art, cave drawings and whatnot, and musical instruments. Now, this shows that aesthetic values are inherent in our nature. Beyond that, it's what people wanted. You may think that that's an error, but for millennia, gold and silver served as money. And every time a government attempted to debase their gold or silver money, eventually that country, the people of that country, revolted against the inflationary measures. Human action drives economic activity, not government dictate. And if people wanted gold and silver for their production and to exchange it for the production of others, we must assume that there was a rationale behind it. And herein, I hope that I have made it, made it clear what exactly that rationale was. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. That will be all for tonight. But do not forget to tune in tomorrow night for the third and final episode of this three-part series on the origins of money. Also, don't forget to check out our show page. On the, the show page can be found at macroviewnews.com. So on the show page for tonight's episode, I'll also link to last night's episode. I'll link to the World Gold Council's website. They've got some pretty cool uh, stuff on their website. They've got a little interactive map. You can kind of see where most of the gold production comes from and how there is actually gold production on, on every continent and almost every country across the earth. And I'll also link to a free copy, a free PDF copy of Carl Menger's The Origin of Money, uh, which can be found on the, on the Mises Institute's website. Now, tomorrow night, we're going to discuss Mises' explanation of how money became valued and gained a stable value separate from its use value, primarily gold and silver, how it developed what we now know as an exchange value and how that came to be. Then we will also discuss an exchange value, I should say, that's separate from the use value. And then we will also discuss the current money mischief that's taking place across the world, uh, to quote Milton Friedman's book, book title, which is a pretty good book as well. You should check it out. And we will have a discussion on the evolution of money, for example, Bitcoin, and why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have caused some, caused some rifts in, uh, in the world of the Austrian School of Economics. I'll discuss my take on the matter, and I, I'll discuss why I personally believe that it does fit within Mises' regression theorem. But we'll also make the case for why maybe it, it would just be better to agree to disagree 
and or to realize that, hey, there are other things as well that Mises didn't get right and nobody's perfect and nobody could have uh, you know, possibly had the foresight way back when to, uh, you know, to, to imagine a world, the world of today. And it's quite reasonable to say that Mises could have never imagined how the world would have evolved with the internet and personal computer revolutions. So again, do not forget to check out our show page. It's macroviewnews.com. Tonight's episode will be the first post that you see on the homepage when you arrive there. Now, while you're there, look for the links to our Facebook and Twitter pages so that you can follow us on social media and get some updates and go ahead and subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode and so you'll be notified as soon as new episodes are released. Lastly, but most importantly, do not forget to share the macro view with your friends and family with your social media networks and wherever else you feel it's appropriate so that you can help me to spread the logic of liberty. Tune in tomorrow night and every night so that you can garner the knowledge needed to take on statists of all varieties. Take care, folks. You've been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.